Do you need help with your journey following Jesus? Has your Bible reading brought up some interesting questions? Um, I, I need a prayer request. Is I've heard um, pastors talk about you can't get to heaven just with good deeds. I was just wondering what you guys think. Is, the, is there a correlation between the seventh trumpet and Revelations as the last trumpet, or is he talking about some other trumpet? Finally, a place to get answers. We're ready to take your prayer request and answer your Bible questions. Call in at 303-690-3000. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady here with you today, taking your calls and texts live on the air. We want to welcome those of you who are tuning in, wherever you're tuning in from today. Welcome, first of all, to those listening in Colorado and into southern Wyoming on Grace FM. We also want to welcome those listening on the East Coast, on Hope FM in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Maryland. We want to welcome those who are listening on Truth FM in Tennessee and those listening on the Radio by Grace network of stations, with stations all over the United States, particularly in the southern U.S. Welcome to you. We're glad to have you tuning in today. We also want to greet our listeners on Higher Rock Radio in Idaho. So welcome to the program, to all of you, wherever you're tuning in from today. My name is Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, and I'm here with you today and every Friday as your host here, taking your calls and answering your questions. This is a show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible and with your prayer requests. We'd love to pray for you and lift up those needs that you have for prayer to the Lord, and we would love to answer any questions you have about the Bible. Maybe you've been reading the Bible and you've come across things that have maybe confused you or you're not sure what to do with them or how to make sense of them. Or maybe there's, on the other hand, something going on in your life and you're wondering, what does the Bible have to say about this situation that could help me to navigate it in a way that's faithful to the scriptures and faithful to God? That's why this show exists. We have pastors and ministry leaders standing by every uh, Friday at 5 or sorry, every weekday, actually, I'm sorry, at, from 4 to 5 p.m. Mountain Time to take those calls, pray for those prayer requests, and to answer your questions. So the number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, that text line is 720 336 0897. Just a heads up that those listening on Hope FM, on Truth FM, and on Higher Rock Radio, you're hearing the show on a one week delay. We just want you to be aware of that. And we, we would encourage you to think of that even as a unique opportunity you have to. It gives you an entire week after you call in or text in and get your question answered on the show to tell everybody you know to tune in in your local area on. The station where you listen and to hear it. And maybe that gives you an opportunity to an invite and introduce some other people to this show and the great things that God is doing here through it as his word goes out, as people's questions are answered, as we together as a community lift up prayer needs to the Lord and see those prayers answered. Uh, but for those of you listening on Grace FM, on gracefm.com, uh, through the Grace FM app, or those listening on the higher, or sorry, on the Radio by Grace network of stations, you're all hearing the show live today. So today is Friday, January 27th. It's a sunny but cold day where I'm broadcasting from here in Longmont, Colorado. And I uh, hope that wherever you are, you're staying warm and staying safe, maybe out on the road driving right now. 
Again, this is a show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible and your prayer requests. So give us a call at 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Just a few words about myself. My name is Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church, which is located in Longmont, Colorado. And we are a Calvary Chapel-affiliated church here in this great city. And what that means is that we're a church that's committed to teaching through the Bible. We're committed to uh, being faithful to what the scriptures have to say and yet being relevant in the sense of seeking to reach people with contemporary music and being evangelistic in our outreach uh, efforts. And so if you're looking for a place to worship, a place for your family to grow as disciples of Jesus, and you are in our local area or within driving distance of our church, I would love to personally invite you to join us this Sunday or any Sunday after this. Our church is in Longmont, but we're on the east side of Longmont, close to I-25, kind of in between downtown Longmont and I-25 here on Highway 119, which is the main thoroughfare that connects I-25, downtown Longmont, and then down into Boulder. And we'd love to have you visit us. We are just on the north side of Highway 119. So I see right now, even just out my window, hundreds of cars driving by. So if any of those of you are driving by right now, just look to the north, um, our address is 2950 Colorful Avenue here in Longmont. We're right opposite Sandstone, Sandstone Ranch Community Park, which is our big sports complex here on the east side of Longmont. Our church has been in this location for about coming up on three years. Slowly, you know, we moved into this place during the pandemic. Um, but yeah, coming up on three years this year that we'll be in this location. But our church has been around for over 10 years. I've been the pastor here now for 10 years exactly. Uh, prior to that, I was a missionary in Hungary. And so I've done a lot of um, ministry over there. I pastored and was a missionary for 10 years over in Hungary before moving back to Colorado, which is where I grew up. So I'm a local here in this area and um, just enjoying being part of what the Lord's doing here on the Northern Front Range and glad to be able to host this show and answer your questions and pray for your prayer requests. So Again, the number to call is 303-690-3000, or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Our first text message that's come in is from Jessie. She says, what are some things that will help me overcome my barriers to my commitment to God? So Jessie, when it comes to um, barriers to commitment to God, I think that one of the most helpful things is actually um, thinking about desire. Right, So I think that there are things that we get committed to, and the reason we get committed to them oftentimes has to do with our desires. Now, if we just tell ourselves, you know, kind of like try and force ourselves to change and become more committed to God, I think that's usually just what will happen is we just run out of energy, we run out of desire, um, because there's nothing fueling that. So you can kind of put it this way, that it's like a car, right? If you try and push your car really hard, um, you can go pretty far until you've run out of gas, right? You're going to need to put some gas in that tank in order to keep on going. And I think that works the same way in the Christian life. And also, if you think about it, really commitment in any area of your life, if you just try to do it by sheer willpower, it's not going to be able to sustain you over the long haul. What we need is fuel in the tank. So the question then is, what can give us fuel in the tank 
to fuel our commitment to God, our love for God, and our, our worship of God. I love this phrase that I heard uh, from someone a while back. They said, they said, doctrine or theology, doctrine is fuel for worship. And I thought that was really good because I think sometimes people think of doctrine as kind of like a distraction from um, an intimate personal relationship with God. I don't know if you've ever heard that sentiment before. I, I certainly have, right? Like people who would say, well, you know, I just want to have a love affair with God. I want to have a, you know, vibrant relationship with God. I don't want to be distracted by, you know, theology and doctrine and all these people talking about, you know, the finer elements of what the Bible says. And I would say, okay, yeah, I get that, that there can be some, some of those conversations about theology and doctrine can sometimes get into a place that is not edifying or encouraging to our relationship with God. It does become a bit of splitting hairs and even uh, unnecessary divisions within the church. But I would say that in general, talking about God's attributes and what God has done, right? That aspect of theology and doctrine is not a distraction. Rather, that's fuel. And what's it fuel for? It's fuel for worship. If I want to worship God, well, the thing that will fuel me in worshiping God is seeing who he is, what he's done, how good he is, how great he is, and the heart that he has for me and for the world. And so I would encourage you that that is one of those ways that we'll, we'll do that. And, you know, I think about um, Jonathan Edwards. He was a, he's sometimes considered one of the greatest theologians that's ever come out of the United States. And Jonathan Edwards had this thing where he said that worship of God is something that is um, that is very much not just tied to our minds, it is also tied to our hearts, right? So it's tied to our desires. And so therefore, what will cause us to want to worship God rather than to sin or go, you know, serve other things or pursue other things is when we see God for the beautiful one that he is. And the more that we see him, the more it will cause us to desire him. And that will cause us to desire things that are contrary to his will less. So I would just encourage you in that sense, like dive into the word of God, start seeking out who God is and what he is. And, and that will fuel within you worship and commitment to God more than just like trying to like do it out of willpower. I hope that helps. Jesse, thanks for that text and God bless you. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. My name is Nick Cady. I'm here with you today answering your calls and texts live on the air. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. We've got all open lines right now. It's a great time to call in. We can get you on the show very quickly to answer those questions you have about the Bible and to pray for your prayer requests. And we'd love to do that. So again, the number to call 303-690-3000. In fact, I would encourage you save that number in your phone as well as the text line. And what you can do is then maybe when you're, you, the show comes on at some point, rather than having to wait to hear the numbers repeated, because we do repeat them several times throughout the show, um, instead of having to wait for them to be repeated, you'll have them and you'll be ready to call into the show whenever available time, you know, is whenever time comes available. So the number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. So 720-336-0897 for the text line. I see we have a text reply from Jesse, and she said, thank you for that reply. Well, cool. Um, 
yeah, so we're here today answering your questions. Again, my name is Nick Cady, pastor of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. This Sunday, I'm excited, we are in a series which is uh, on looking at the pastoral epistles, which are the letters of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. One of the things that we've been trying to do here at our church in Longmont, like I said, I've been the pastor here for 10 years, and what we do is we teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We've studied through a lot of the Bible, you know, both Old Testament and New Testament on Sunday mornings, as well as some midweek stuff as well. And we've come to the place where we're really close to having taught through the entire New Testament, which is really exciting because you know, one of our goals is to be able to create this kind of backlog, or if you will, an online sermon library for people who say, hey, you know, I've, I've wondered about this passage in the Bible. I wonder if there's a message I could listen to that explains this section of Scripture. And so then we want to create that as a resource that people can use. So we're really close to doing that. We've only got a few books of the New Testament left to be done with the New Testament portion. Still got many to go in the Old Testament. But right now we, we kind of looked at it and said, oh, well, we've got about seven or eight books of the New Testament still to teach through. And so let's do that. And uh, it'll be a benefit to our church and to, you know, posterity. So we have been teaching through First Timothy. And this week we come to really one of the most controversial passages, not just in First Timothy, but actually in the entire Bible. In fact, I know people who have not taught through First Timothy, pastors who have not taught through First Timothy, just to avoid this section that I come up to this Sunday. So I've been approaching it with a lot of study and with a lot of prayer. Um, the section is First Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. And in this section, Paul talks about the roles of men and women in the church and kind of their conduct and attitudes and behavior. Specifically, though, it contains this phrase that is so controversial in our day and age, which is, um, it says that Paul does not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to learn in quietness. And then it goes on to give two of the most difficult passages to understand in the Bible um, right after that, including one which talks about a woman being saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So what does that mean? Well, if there's any of you out there who want to discuss that, give me a call here at the show. I'd love to discuss it with you and what I've discovered through my study and, um, you know, maybe address some common pushback to this as well. And, and one of the, some of the ways that people argue against the ways that this text has been applied. I'd love to discuss that with you. The number to call 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. But let's go to Phil in Aurora, Colorado. Hi, Phil. Welcome to the program. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, Absolutely. My What's question, up? Yeah. Um, my question, uh, somebody was, gave me uh, kind of an argument against um, Young Earth was that uh, with the distance of the stars that are from the distance they, uh, way they are, how far away they are from Earth, and with, you know, um, the light, you know, we have a light year, how long uh, it takes light to travel through space. That basically, there couldn't there couldn't be a young Earth because um, because of how far the stars away are away from Earth. Um, so I, don't know, I was looking just a little bit more details on it. I was seeing that one star was 4.3, the nearest the stars like 4.3 light years away. Uh, but, um, so anyway, I didn't know if you'd heard that argument. Um, 
Yeah, no, I am familiar with that argument. Um, yeah, so basically, if I were to summarize it for our listeners, it, it would be this, that some people would say, well, if you look at uh, light coming from the stars, if we just do the math on how long it takes light to travel, and we think about light years, that means that this light has been traveling for longer than a few thousand years, which is what the Bible tells us about. Like if you add up all the numbers in the Bible of the generations, it adds up to about 7,000 years. And so if you do that, then it doesn't, like how does that make sense of the fact that this light is coming from way out in the, uh, in the universe that apparently has been traveling for a very long time before it has reached us? And so to answer your question, I mean, I'm not an astrophysicist. I'm not uh, somebody who can speak to this with any uh, level of expertise on the scientific side. But what's interesting is that where I'm located here in Longmont, a lot of people in our church do work in aerospace. In fact, the president of our board uh, here at our church is a rocket scientist. And we have several other rocket scientists uh, who attend our church. And um, I've talked to them about these things, and I actually have a, a physics professor who uh, teaches at a local university here who attends our church as well. And, you know, for him, he, he was saying that he looked at that and he really wrestled with that a lot because he can look at the Bible and he can see all this evidence for God's hand on the Bible. But then he looks at the universe and he says, well, I'm not sure if I can believe in a young earth creation, which is, by the way, the, the view that holds that God created the world in six literal days and rested on the seventh, and therefore the earth has only existed for 7,000 years. I mean, he said it's, you know, he can understand the idea that God maybe created the world as a mature earth, right? Like, in other words, he didn't create Adam as a baby, but created him as a grown man who could do grown man things. In the same way, somebody might say, well, well, God could have created the earth, right? And so when we look at like carbon dating and things like that, and it seems that the earth is older than 7,000 years, it is possible, they say, that God could have created the earth as a old looking earth, even though it was young, a mature earth, if you will. And so um, the question is, okay, does the light that's coming from way out in the galaxy, is that the same principle that God created a old seeming universe, a mature universe, um, even though he only created it seven to 10,000 years ago. I think that's possible. Um, another option, I mean, there's, a, there's many people who actually hold to the belief that when it talks in Genesis chapter one, right, that God created the universe and the stars, perhaps at a time prior to the creation of the world. I don't personally believe that. It's called the gap theory. I don't hold to that view myself. I think it's problematic in some ways. Uh, I would tend to hold to really a, a mature universe, not just a mature youth, uh, mature earth theory. But like I said, I'm not a physicist. Uh, there's some really great guys, though, who are doing really good work. And some of them, in fact, again, connected to our church here in Longmont. And uh, it's really great to have them at the church. And, you know, they're, they were, they're scientists by trade, and they actually, you know, love to dive into these things. And so there's something here in Colorado called the Discovery Institute. It's actually based out of Seattle, Washington. Um, but they have a Denver branch, and some of the members of the Denver branch are also members of our church here at Whitefields. And so I would I would kind of commend them to you as a great resource. They have papers. They host talks at universities. I know that I attended one, for example, up at CSU in Fort Collins. 
And so I would say, check out the Discovery Institute, maybe reach out to them, see what kind of information they have available um, to explain this in ways that are perhaps more complex than, you know, my simple explanation of a old seeming universe um, or a mature universe, even though it is young. So that would be my, my take on that. I thought that came in my mind when I was showed this or brought this was brought to my attention was is it possible that there's you know we see more stars today than we did like when King David was you know king in Israel mm. so maybe as as time has gone on we have seen additional stars as the light has traveled to to us I don't know if that was yeah. No, I'm, I mean, it makes sense, at least, you know, I'm not sure if that that's the case or not, because again, I think that's a little bit above my pay grade as a theologian, but I would say that uh, it makes sense, at least the line of reasoning does. And then, oh. um, could, could I ask one more thing that's sort of semi-related? Sure. Um, and so in Genesis 1-1, it talks about, um, it says, uh, in the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes into and then it goes into more details of all the other things. Now it is, um, and, it, and then it talks about dividing the lightness, the light and dark, and so on. Um, so I guess I don't know. Maybe this is going into that gap theory, but is there? Is it? Is it necessarily? It seems like it's almost already. Mm -hmm. already created yeah i get your point so they uh here's how the gap theory works i'll just kind of make it quick it is this that in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and they would say there between verses one and verse two there's essentially a gap of perhaps you know many thousand years even and then they would go on and say then the earth was without form and void well they say well if god created it then it must something must have happened that caused it to become without form and void and so that that's how the gap theory kind of works. It's this theory that between verses one and two of Genesis, there's this massive gap in which uh, the earth had been created, but then somehow, you know, something ca catastrophic took place that caused the earth to become without form and void and darkness to cover the face of the deep. And then essentially what you read in verse three then is God recreating the earth uh, from from that. And so there, there's a lot of other speculation that goes along with that. Another really important thing to understand about Genesis 1 is that it is primarily intended to be a poem that extols the beauty of God's creation, not necessarily a science textbook. Now, that doesn't mean, and I hope that people don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that it's not accurate. I'm not saying that it's not true. I'm just saying that its primary purpose isn't to give us a scientific reading of what happened with the creation of the earth, but rather its primary purpose is to tell us a few things that when God created the earth, it wasn't like the other creation myths out there that say that, you know, the creation of the earth was the result of chaos or a battle between different gods. Rather, they say the creation of the earth, it was done in loving care by a God who spoke things into existence, and he did it because he loves us, and he sang over creation. It says in the book of Job that when God created the world, the angels shouted for joy, right? It was this beautiful thing that took place. It wasn't the result of 
cataclysmic, chaotic, negative things taking place. And so that's, that's the primary um, purpose of it. Now, again, at the same time, I, I also believe that it's literally true. And so um, I, I think that sometimes, though, we can be looking for things in the text which the text isn't intending to give us. And so it's important to understand genre. It's important to understand uh, the point of what's being said and not miss the forest for the trees, if you will. But um, I, I think it's possible. I mean, the gap theory, I, I think it's problematic, but I don't, um, I think it's got way too much speculation in it personally. I think it's missing the point of the passage. And what was the name of that institute again? Discovery Institute. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you very much. You bet. God bless you. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air. The number to call, 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go to Dwayne in Aurora, Colorado. Hi, Dwayne. Welcome to the program. Hi. How you doing, Nick? I'm doing great. I have a quick question, and that is, in Matthew 21, verse 21, or 20 and 21, it says that if you believe that you're going to receive it, you shall receive it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if that's applicable to nowadays, or is that just something that was, you know, said to the apostles? Yeah, so I would say that I think that this does apply to today. So I'll just, you know, it's, here's what Jesus is talking about. Right, he's walking in Jerusalem. He sees a fig tree, and um, he sees that it has nothing but leaves. In other words, it has no fruit on it. Now that that's a whole metaphor in itself that gets into um, some things regarding Israel that also have application for our lives as Christians in regard to bearing fruit and being the fig tree. But um, it's really important what Jesus says after that. He says, "If you have faith and do not doubt." Not only will you do what uh, has been done to the fig tree, in other words, he caused it to wither there on the spot, but he says, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, of course, we want to take that with the other verses. So anytime we, you know, the really good way to have bad theology is to take verses out of context and not consider how they apply in relation to the whole of the Bible and the whole testimony of Scripture. So if I was to take that phrase by itself, I could build an entire theology of prayer on it, but to do so would ignore the other passages in the Bible, which say complementary things uh, that kind of complement or fill out our view of how prayer works, if you will. And so, of course, we have other passages that are very similar to this, almost identical. And they'll say, whenever you pray, if you ask in Jesus's name, then my Father will give you what you ask for. Now we know that to pray in Jesus's name refers not just to saying the words as like abracadabra, right? That's not what it is. It's not a magic phrase or word. Rather, to pray in Jesus's name means to pray by his authority and submitted to his will. That's why we say amen, which means your will be done or let it be so. But the implication is that God's will will be done. Like we pray in the Lord's prayer, you know, your will be done. And so, yeah, just really important that we take that in there. And one of the things I always tell our church here in Longmont, I always say that with God, what we have is not a genie in a bottle. 
but what we have is a Father in heaven who knows us best and who loves us most and who will always give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. And I think that sometimes we think that we want a genie in a bottle, right? Just say the right words, have enough faith, and you can get whatever you want. But if you even look at, if you even just look at the stories of genies in a bottle, like from uh, antiquity, the whole point of those stories is that sometimes we think we know what we want, but getting what we want is in some cases the worst thing that could possibly happen to us. But what we need is not just to get whatever we want. What we need is a Father in heaven who knows us best, loves us most, and who will give us whatever we really need based on his perfect knowledge and perfect love for us. So hope that answers your prayer. I do think it applies to all people at all times, but has to be rounded out. We're going to be right back in two minutes' time. You're listening to Calvary Live. Give us a call, 303-690-3000. Welcome back to Calvary Live. Give us a call at 303-690-3000 or text us at 720-336-0897. Let's join Calvary Live right now. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. I'm here with you today taking your calls and texts live on the air. This is a show where you can call in with your questions about the Bible. You can also call in with your prayer requests, and we will pray for those prayer requests on the air so that those listening can say yes and amen and agree with us about those prayers, and we can answer your questions about the Bible. Maybe something you've read that you've struggled to understand, or maybe there's been something going on in your life or in society at large, and you're wondering, what does the Bible have to say about it? We'd love to answer those kinds of questions for you here on the show. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Once again, the text line is 720-336-0897. I would just encourage you, maybe you're out there and you have a question that's on your mind, but maybe you wonder, oh, this is maybe maybe not a good question or, or, you know, I'm probably the only one who wonders about this. Let me just encourage you that a lot of times when I talk to people who listen to this show, they'll tell me, you know, someone called in and they asked the exact question that I had been wondering about, but I was too shy to call in myself. And so I would just encourage you, um, maybe you calling in and asking that question is not just going to help you, but the other person out there who is too shy to call in. So give us a call, 303 303- Six nine zero three thousand, or text us at seven two zero three three six zero eight nine seven. We got a text message here from Rob in Longmont, my hometown. Here he says this: Genesis in Genesis twenty eight verses fourteen and fifteen, God tells Jacob that he will not leave him until he's finished everything he promised to do, which is to bless all the earth through his offspring. The question is: Did God finish everything he promised to do? with the first coming of Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Okay, let's just look at the section and the verses in question. Okay, so this is a section found in Genesis, of course, Genesis 28, um, starting in verse 10. So the setting here is that um, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so this is Jacob, who is Abraham's grandson and Isaac's son, he leaves from the land of Canaan, and he goes towards Haran. Now, Haran is where um, he's got some relatives, and he's going to meet there so that he'll marry someone who is actually from his 
uh, family lineage, if you will, who shares faith in the God of Israel, rather than marrying the Canaanites who live in the area around Canaan, which is where he and his family currently live as minorities, if you will. So it says that Jacob left Beersheba, Beersheba is being part of Canaan, went towards Haran, and he went to this place, and he has this dream. He sees this ladder stretching up to heaven, angels ascending and descending on it, which, by the way, is its own really cool tie-in to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, where Jesus explains that he is Jacob's ladder, the way the ladder between, the way that's made between heaven and earth. But going on, um, God makes this promise to him. Here's what he says. It says, the Lord stood above him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and the north and the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised for you. So the question is, did God fulfill that promise? And if so, when did he fulfill it just in the second coming? Okay, so this is a throwback to the promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 and to Isaac in Genesis 26, who's Jacob's dad. And so in each generation, God has been repeating this promise that he is going to bring about through them many descendants and through their descendants. And we know this also because of earlier in Genesis, we we're told that in order to solve the problem of sin and death, God is going to send a person, a child who will be born uniquely of a woman, not of a man, and will crush the head of Satan, though Satan will bite his heel. That's found in Genesis 3, verse 15. That's what's called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first gospel in the Bible, the first mention of the gospel, Genesis 3, verse 15. And then after that, we wonder, okay, so who is this child? Where will this child come from? Then we meet this man, Abraham, and he's given this promise that from one of his descendants, God's going to bless all the people of the earth. Then Isaac, his son is born miraculously. And Isaac receives the same promise. Now Jacob receives the same promise. So we see this family line. In other words, the Bible doesn't exist to just tell us about the history of the world. The Bible tells us it's laser focused on one family line, which will lead from Adam through Abraham to the Messiah, Jesus. And so did that promise get fulfilled? Well, yes, that promise of a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Like we see this at the end of the Bible in Revelation, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are gathered around the throne of God in heaven, praising God because they've been redeemed from the earth because through the offspring of uh, Abraham comes Jesus, the Messiah, through whom people are saved, people of every family or nation of the earth. And so this question, was God always with him? Well, yes, God was with him. Yes, God, even in Jacob's lifetime, brought him back to that land, just as he promised that he would be. Um, but I also see that, you know, God was with not just Jacob, but with what Jacob represented, which is the people of God throughout history, and that he is with them until he promised them what to do. Yeah, ab absolutely. God was with them and fulfilled that promise. Um, so thanks for that great question, Rob, and uh, keep up the Bible reading and studying and inquiries into it. Well, with that, we went from having all open lines to having all full lines. So let's go to our first caller, Penny from Maryland. 
Hi, Penny. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you. I'm calling to ask a question about babies and children, especially the children. More, I'm pretty sure the answer for babies that they do go to heaven if they didn't make um, a full turn. And for the children, what is the age of accountability if they have not accepted Christ and they understand Christ, but mm-hmm. yet they, they like on the fence? I mean, do they, and are there more children in heaven, you think, than adults? Because yeah. children, okay. Yeah, great question. And I think it's one that uh, a lot of people think about, right? If we believe that life begins in the womb, what about babies who are aborted, who die in infancy, who die even as young children? And to your question, I want to just kind of give a few reasons for why we believe in something called an age of accountability. And then I'll answer your your question directly. Um, So, you know, what about those who have never heard, understood, or believed the gospel? What happens to their souls? Uh, well, we do know from some anecdotal evidence, if you will, from Second Samuel chapter 12, which is where David has a child with Bathsheba, but that child dies in infancy. It's interesting, though, that David expresses his belief that one day, even though his child has died, he will be reunited with his deceased son. Um, and why would he do this? Well, that, that brings up a question, right? If, if we believe that we are all born with a fallen, sinful nature— and God's judgment comes against sinners, then the question is this, does God's judgment come against those who have a sinful nature, which is everyone, or is God's judgment directed against disobedience, which therefore would be based on knowledge? So some people would point to Romans chapter 1 and 2, specifically Romans chapter 1, where it says that the wrath of God is incurred by those who know God and rebel against God. In other words, disobedience. It also says that, by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 9, it states that infants do not have knowledge of good and evil. So we think about how that might also apply to, for example, those who have cognitive disabilities, right? So we talk often about people with certain disabilities. They might be 35 years old, but they mentally and cognitively are on the level of a two to four-year-old, right? I mean, there are people in that situation. And so what's um, been in, now this phrase isn't found in the Bible, but I think this, it can be deduced from the Bible that there is such a thing as an age of accountability, a point at which a person becomes responsible for their actions and their choices before God. Now, even our human laws deal with people based on knowledge and understanding. And so if God does, then how is the age of accountability determined is the question. Um, I think that we have to say that it's not just one particular age, right? So some people might argue, well, it's 13, because in Jewish culture, 13 is thought to be the age at which a boy becomes a man or a woman or a girl becomes a woman. I would say, I don't think so. I think because that is not something that's found in the Bible. Yes, it's found in Jewish culture, but it's not something that's found in the Bible. And so I would say that, again, not every 13-year-old I've ever met is equal in their maturity or in their you know cognitive understanding. And furthermore, I would say I've met children younger than that who clearly understand the gospel and who can choose to 
surrender their life to the Lord or to rebel against God? And so I think the answer to your question is, look, it differs with every individual, but God knows when that point is. It's going to differ based on like if somebody has, again, intellectual disabilities, that's going to affect it. You know, in First Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 5, it says that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And what that tells us, that saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, means that there's some aspect of our salvation which has to do with understanding certain things, certain knowledge, right, that you believe and have faith in certain things being true. That means that there is some aspect of it that has to do with understanding. And so I think that's going to vary from person to person, and it will vary in the case of certain circumstances, such as disabilities. Um, your question, are there more children in heaven than adults? I think perhaps the answer is yes, because especially in times gone by, many, many children died in infancy. And so this would be a, a mercy of God to uh, save their souls. And yet, um, here's the other thing I believe. I don't believe that those people are like trapped in infancy or childhood forever. So very much as we talked about like a young earth, old earth thing earlier, well, this is different, but I think there's a similar principle here, which is that in heaven, I don't think like, let's say someone dies at 97 years old, are they going to be trapped in an elderly state for the rest of eternity? Or, you know, a baby dies in infancy, will they be a baby for eternity? I don't believe so. I think that we will receive new bodies, which are different and hard to, you know, I think we're trying to say, okay, so it'll be exactly like this. I'm saying, uh, I don't think it'll be exactly like this. I think there will be some things that are physical and tangible, and there are parallels, but they're not going to be exactly the same. All right. I didn't thought about that part. When you just say but at the end, in reference to will babies be babies when they go to heaven, because that's not, may not be the case. Yeah, I don't expect that it is, but... Um... You know, I've never been to heaven either, so I guess when we, when we get there, we'll find out. There'll probably be a lot of surprises. But, Penny, thanks for your call, and God bless you. All right, bye-bye. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air. The number to call, 303-690-3000. Let's go to John from Davenport, Iowa. Hi, John. Welcome to the program. Hi. Yeah, thank you. What can we do for you? Oh, well, I, I told the person the, the question. Um, in the Bible, how do they know what day is what day and, and so forth? And it goes to the seventh day is Saturday, the Sabbath. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and um, I, don't, I don't understand how they figured out what what day is what day. Sure. Yeah, I, I get your point. Like, how do they know which day is which? Yeah, um, I'll give you a few answers. And yeah, I would just encourage you, if you have a radio in the background, there's a bit of a delay, so feel free to turn that off. Um, it'll help the sound. But yeah, how did they know which day it was? I mean, one of the reasons is because lots of other cultures, you know, just as in our in our culture, right? Like, how do we know that today is Friday? Well, we know it because there's kind of this global consensus that says, okay, today's Friday. And at some point, you know, different nations around the world had to determine which day of the week it is, 
and they all had to somehow agree on that. And so I'm not sure how that all came about, but it certainly seems to have taken place a very, very long time ago, like way back thousands of years BC, um, where people determined, you know, a calendar and they started tracking the days. And so they were very much aware of which day was which and, you know, consecutive days and the, the Jewish people, of course, counting seven because of creation, resting on the seventh day. And so that's how they would know which days of the week. I mean, really through consensus and through tracking the days. But, you know, to to that point, I think that some people might be really concerned, like, oh, no, what if I thought it was uh, I thought it was uh, Friday, but it actually was Saturday. And therefore, I sinned against God by doing something on the Sabbath, which I should not have done. Um, I would say, you know, the freedom that we have as Christians is really important. Because as Christians, we look at places like Hebrews chapter 4 that talk about the Sabbath. You know, Hebrews is talking about all of the Jewish traditions and laws and how those things, the ceremonial laws particularly, are fulfilled in Jesus. And therefore, we don't, um, we're not required to keep the Sabbath anymore because in this sense, right, we're not required to keep the Sabbath in order to make ourselves holy because the Sabbath, it says in uh, Colossians chapter two, was really a signpost pointing us to Jesus, who is our Sabbath, right? So there can still be a Sabbath principle of taking a day to rest and to seek the Lord. That's a really good thing. But what if you do it on a Tuesday and not on a Saturday? Is God going to be upset about that? Well, the answer would be no in Christ, particularly because Jesus is our Sabbath. And so I would encourage you, yeah, take a look at Colossians chapter 2. I think it's verse 18. I'm going to look at it real quick and just give you the exact verse. But it's a really important verse in this regard. Here it is. It's verse 16. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath because these things are shadows of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then if you go over to Hebrews chapter four, it explains to us that Jesus is our Sabbath, the one in whom we have rest from our works of trying to justify ourselves and justify our life before God. So John, thanks for that great question and God bless you. I encourage you to keep seeking the Lord and reading his word. You're listening to Calvary Live. This is Pastor Nick Cady from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, taking your calls and texts live on the air. The number to call is 303-690-3000. That's 303-690-3000. Or you can text us at 720-336-0897. Let's go to Brady in Charleston, South Carolina. Hi, Brady. Welcome to the program. Brady. Well, I see that Brady had a question, and uh, I'll answer the question. We might have missed him. His question is, what is considered blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Great question, and one that we've had asked many times here on the show. Um, I wrote an article about this just because I needed a resource that I could just email out to people. So you can find that on my website if you're looking for a good article that you can maybe read yourself or send to others. You can find that on my website, which is nickkady.org. So that's N-I-C-K. C-A-D-Y dot O-R-G. So if you go over there and just search in the search bar, just look for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it'll come right up. And essentially, here's the idea. 
we're told that this is the one sin which is not forgivable. All sins committed by people will be forgiven them except for this, to commit blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So therefore, that sounds pretty important. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I've talked to a lot of people over the years who say that verse scares me. It makes me worried that I've accidentally done it. Kind of like if I tell you, don't envision a purple elephant. Well, now it's the only thing that you can envision in your mind. You try and get it out of there, but you can't. It's the only thing you can think about. Well, I think that's how some people are with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They're like, okay, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And then they'll be like, oh no, I think I accidentally did it because it was the only thing I was thinking about. Um, I would tell you, if that's the case, you haven't done it. Um, because what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is needs to be understood in context of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the person work of the Holy Spirit, we're told in John, Gospel of John, by Jesus, chapters 14, 15, and 16. We're told about the work and person of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says there, he's telling his disciples at the Last Supper that he's going away, but he's not going to leave them as orphans. He's going to send his Spirit to be their helper and to be their guide, to help remind them of the things that he said and to guide them into all truth. And he says there, you know the Spirit, the Spirit has been with you, but soon the Spirit will not just be with you, he will also be in you. So that tells us that the relationship the Holy Spirit had with people prior to that time is that he was with them, but they're going to, these disciples are soon, meaning in the future, going to experience a new relationship with Jesus, a different kind that they haven't experienced before. So that tells us that there are different relationships that different people have with the Holy Spirit. And if we would survey the whole Bible, particularly those passages, John 15, 16, or sorry, John 14, 15, and 16, here's what you'll see. There are three relationships that people have with the Holy Spirit, and they can be characterized by three words, with, in, and upon, with, in and upon. So the Holy Spirit is with, Jesus tells us there in John 16, he is with all people, and the work that he does with all people is to convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That they are sinners, that they have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that God is righteous, and therefore there is coming a future judgment. And therefore, what do they need? They need a Savior, and Jesus is the Savior that they need. So that's the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all people, drawing them to Jesus, bringing about conviction of sin, and telling them to turn to Jesus as the Savior that they need and that has been provided for them by God. Now, we're told, like in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and, and other places as well, that people often resist the Holy Spirit, right? And so, Peter says to those in Jerusalem, you are resisting the Holy Spirit. So what that means is that the Holy Spirit is drawing people to Jesus, and yet you can resist that work of the Holy Spirit. And here's what happens. If you resist that work of the Holy Spirit for your entire life, there will come a point, whether it's the end of your life or perhaps even before that, when God says to you, I will not strive with you any longer. In essence, you know, it was his mercy, his grace that he reached out to you and drew you and convicted you. But if you resist the Holy Spirit, that's a very dangerous thing to do because you don't know how much time you will have left. This is why we're told in the book of Hebrews, two, two times we're told this. Therefore, if you hear the voice of the Lord calling you, do not harden your heart as the people did in the wilderness, as Israel did in their wilderness. 
In other words, to resist the Lord means to harden your heart. And what can happen over time is that you develop what the Bible calls a calloused heart. You think about callous, right? You get calluses like when you play the guitar, when you use certain tools. A callous is when skin goes from being soft to becoming hard. And what happens when it gets hard? It becomes unfeeling and unsensitive, right? So I remember, you know, learning to play the guitar and my fingers would bleed in the beginning. But then after doing it, I built up calluses and not only did they not bleed, I could no longer feel what I formerly could feel, right? It didn't hurt anymore. Well, the same thing can happen with our hearts that the Holy Spirit will convict you of a sin and that conviction will hurt. You'll feel pain. You'll feel sorrow, anguish. But sometimes if you harden your heart and you just keep doing it, well, over time, it's not that the Holy Spirit is no longer convicting you. It's that you just don't feel it anymore. You don't feel the pain of conviction anymore. And uh, you've developed a calloused heart, which is a very dangerous place to be in. Because again, the point can come at some point in your life where you have resisted the Holy Spirit to the point where there's, there's no more salvation available for you. For most people, this is going to be the moment when they die. And so that would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the rejection of that work of the Holy Spirit. So I hope that makes sense. And, um, and I, again, I would just encourage anyone out there who's listening, it's a very serious thing, the one thing that cannot be forgiven. So don't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but also don't worry that maybe you've done it on accident. It's certainly not something that can be done on accident. It's, it's uh, something that is done over time, and it's very intentional. So thanks for that question, Brady. I know it's a big one for many people. Hey, you're listening to Calvary Live. We've come up to the last five minutes of our show. We're going to go and check out some of our text messages, but I'll give you the numbers to call and text just in case there's anybody who just joined us and you want to get in one last question before the end of the show. The number to call is 303-690-3000, or you can text us at 720-336-0897. So going back to our questions in the text messages. Um, someone asked this, at work, I'm being asked to help a man change his name to match his gender identity as a woman. Would it be sinful for me to do this if I'm asked by my supervisor? Yeah, great question. I can definitely understand that kind of moral, ethical conundrum that you're in. Uh, I would say that if you're being asked to do this by your supervisor, it's not something you need to do that will generally, like, it doesn't mean that you're consenting to it, right? By you doing, following an order that's been given to you, I don't think that you're sinning against God by doing this because you're not condoning it by doing it. Um, I think that you can um, do that, you know, if that's your job, if that's part of your occupation. So hope that puts you at rest. I, I would also say, though, you know, the Bible makes it clear that there are these certain areas where if something is a sin to you, meaning that you cannot do this with a good conscience, that you shouldn't do it, and you shouldn't do it as if unto the Lord. And so I would encourage you, if that if you feel really strongly about this, then I would say, you know, maybe it is time to find another job, unfortunately. So yeah, that's a really tough place to be in. Uh, and let's pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray for this uh, text person who texted in. I also pray for others who are experiencing similar conundrums in their work uh, related to issues of gender, sexuality, and things like that, being asked to affirm or do things 
which go against their convictions as Christians. Lord, give them wisdom with how to navigate that. Help them to understand what are the lines that they should not cross and what are the ones where you give them uh, freedom to do so. And so we uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We've come up to the end of our show. We did get one more text question that I want to answer. Uh, the person says, who are the watchers in the Bible? The watchers. Well, several times it's talked about um, the watchers on the wall. We know about watching angels. For example, in the book of Daniel chapter four, we're told about watchers. And that uh, speaks of most likely watching angels. Uh, the Hebrew word translated watcher in Daniel 4 comes from a root word which means wakeful one, so one who is a sentinel, a guardian, one who is always alert and looking out. Um, so I would I would say that, that that seems to be that. But there also are passages which talk about those who are the watchmen on the walls. In other words, those who are kind of alert and have that uh, attitude of discernment, trying to see you know, and defend the faith, if you will. Uh, I, what I've seen in that instance, sometimes people and their zeal for being watchful can sometimes go so far as to, um, as to essentially condemn those whom God doesn't condemn. So we don't want to go to that extreme, but we do want to defend the faith against attacks from the enemy and, and the, the like. But I would also argue that the Bible, it's like, how do you protect the, the word of God? Well, how do you protect a lion? It kind of takes care of itself as well. But we want to be those who protect the church and good doctrine, as we're told, for example, in First Timothy. So, hey, great questions today. Thank you for all your calls and texts, and God bless you. Again, my name's Nick Cady. I'd love it if you check out our church online or in person this weekend. You can find us at whitefieldschurch.com. I'll be with you again very soon. God bless you. Have a great evening and a great weekend. You've been listening to Calvary Live. Tune in next time for prayer and God's word.